think I want to play both sides of the argument. I agree with myself, and I also agree with what you just said, sir. <laughs> well, I don't know how you... A house divided against itself cannot stand, Joe. Dodge this. I am the father. I'm here on a mission of mercy. There's only one God, man, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't dress like that. Let's put a smile on that face. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Welcome to the real world. This is episode 121 of the Movie Bite Podcast, where we talk about movies, movie reviews, movie news, trailers, and more. This episode is being converted to digital bits ready to stream to you on this fine Tuesday, January the 6th, 2014. I'm TJ, your host, and joining me today is the computer whiz, the mathematician, Mr. Joe Darnell. How are you, Joe? I'm doing great, TJ. How are you, sir? Thank you for having me back. I think we have a really good Skype connection tonight, which most of our listeners may not know because I edit all this out. We've had some challenges in the last couple of weeks, and I'm at home, and you're at home, and the Skype connection is good. I just can't imagine a better life. I know. The moment the Skype isn't working very well, I can't even hear myself very well. So right now I can I get myself loud and clear, and I'm pretty happy about that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, so this week we have a couple of items of news, and then uh, we're going to talk about a, a movie called The Imitation Game. It's about imitating games? I don't know. We'll find out when we get there, I suppose. Hmm. Uh, hmm. Not to be confused for Ender's Game? No. Is not, it the sequel? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's the sequel to Ender's Game. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> hmm. But in the meantime, before Historical we get to that, revisionist. yes, yes. Before we get to that, though, uh, we do have a couple of trailers that we'd like to talk about. And one of them is this here Peanuts trailer. That is the sound a Snoopy makes. That's exactly the sound a Snoopy makes. Um, you know, for for whatever reason, I think I've talked about this before, I never really watched a lot of the animated uh, Charlie Brown stuff, but um, I was really into the, for a long time, the comics, and I had, you know, books of Charlie Brown, and I would get them from the library and read the panels, and uh, I just, I, I loved Snoopy and Charlie Brown and Lucy and and uh, always, you know, always wanted, uh, I suppose, I always wanted uh, Charlie Brown to actually get the football one of these days. But, of course, he never has. Oh, and that'll be the day that Charlie Brown dies. So don't wish that. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah. I mean, I have a lot of affinity for uh, Snoopy. And I've, cer- I've certainly seen some of the animated, uh, old animated stuff. Don't get me wrong. And what I love about what we're seeing here is that it really feels, even though it's CGI 3D, it really feels true to what Snoopy and Charlie Brown were and, and are. Um, I'm really, in in a way, excited about this. I, I wasn't at first because I thought, oh, they're gonna, make, I don't know, they're gonna make CGI and I, they're just gonna go crazy with it. And 
I don't uh-huh. know. I was a little, I was a little worried about it. I don't know if you were, uh, but I'm. What I'm seeing here now, now they're they're not pulling. You know, they're not taking opening the kimono too much, but they're they're definitely uh, showing us what looks like classic Charlie Brown. You know, Snoopy peanuts stuff. Mm, interesting. See, my take on it was it was actually fairly consistent with the classic Snoopy stuff, without um, just uh, going so far as to be like a recreation of classic Charlie Brown cartoons. Do you remember how? The Winnie the Pooh series. <laughs> We're all adults here. We all watch Winnie the Pooh, right? We got children. Um, <laughs> how the Winnie the Pooh cartoons in the last oh two decades basically wanted to look like carbon copy- copies of the original cartoons by Disney. I have to confess that I haven't seen modern Winnie the Pooh. Uh, my my experience with Winnie the Pooh comes from you know the stuff made in the fifties and sixties that I watched you know as a kid because my parents let me watch that stuff. Back when you were a child in the fifties and sixties? No, no, I was a child in the eighties. But um, yeah, oh, okay. I mean, but but my point is, like, like my kids, you know, they they watch, uh, you know, Lion King and different stuff. And they're that, the watching the Disney Channel today, not Disney Channel the nineties. No, my kids are actually kind of more nineties kids. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. Were, my point yeah. is, my point is that <laughs> that uh, I, you know, I was not. I'm not familiar with the the current offerings in the Winnie the Pooh world. That's okay. what I'm trying to say. Well, let me explain. The Winnie the Pooh cartoons in the old days were uh, kind of classic Disney style. They had some of the original voice actors. They had several of the original animators. And then in more recent years, they've uh, brought back the characters to life. They wanted to continue the stories. And so they look like they're just the same characters, the same cartoon universe continuing to unfold. Exactly the same thing verbatim. And that worked really well for Winnie the Pooh. I think that that kind of translation of Charlie Brown would have worked as well, but they're not going that way with this. And because I heard early on that it was going to be computer animated, I was concerned that it would go the way of the Garfield uh, animated movies. Oh, exactly. That was precisely my worry, too. That's exactly what I was saying. Yeah, because we all enjoyed the Garfield comic strips as well as the Garfield cartoon. I think that you and I both grew up with it in the 90s, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, good stuff. The cartoon was my thing, man. I I had the first couple of seasons on DVD from several years ago. (laughs) Oh, and that's a – yeah, I envy your collection. And But it's to be concerning, right, when they bring – whenever they bring back classic comic strip characters to the screen because you're concerned that they will do something like they did with Garfield's uh, animated movies in the last few years. Uh, Major disappointments. I know that they also gave Garfield a new animation, uh, a CGI animated television show, and people aren't happy with it either. Well, I have to say I have seen some of that. I've sat down and watched a few episodes with my kids. Um, You know – there are, there are things that I, I feel like I need to pre-screen before I let my kids watch them, and I just wanted to see what kind of that was. And I wasn't that – it's like, oh, this is actually fairly true to the spirit of what Garfield used to be. It's not exactly what it was, and you know, Lorenzo music is gone, and he will forever be Garfield. Mm, so that's, that's true. That's – you know, uh, the, the, the guy who used to do Bo the Sheep on the, uh, the U.S. Acres part of the, of the Garfield show, he's now doing oh, yeah? Garfield. He does a passable job, but it's just not Lorenzo music. Mm. Well, I guess the bigger problem for me isn't so much the stories or the gags when it comes to the animated stuff as it is uh, for the television show. I mean, as it is just the animation style is sorely displeasing. Yes, yes, it is. I would agree with that. Yeah. So, you know, it definitely looks really good for Peanuts. I'm really pleased with what they're doing. It echoes the same things we said earlier this, uh, well, I was going to say this year, but last year when we talked (laughs) about the 
um, what was it? The Popeye um, preview. And yeah, it looks like both of those films are coming together where they have a great mix of the old and the new so that everybody wins. People who like the classic nostalgia and the people who want something more polished and modern. Yeah, I'm looking at a, a still of the trailer here because I was playing it a minute ago and still, so it's still up on my screen. And and what I'm seeing here in the Peanuts trailer, yes, it's CGI. Yes, it's it's got depth in 3D. It's not a 2D rendered, you know, animation. But it feels the spirit of – I don't know how else to describe it. It's capturing the spirit of the 2D feel. Like I don't feel like it's uh, it's popping out and I don't feel like things you – know, I don't feel like things are in a real space. It still feels like a cartoon. Um, well, it, the way I would characterize it is that it's more like a story pop-up book. Yes, yes. Yeah. I, I think that's a good way to put it. They, they feel almost like two and a half D. Um, and, and again, the, uh, the one thing that's very interesting about all this is they haven't, sh- the, the, even though this is now the full trailer, not just a teaser trailer, it's essentially the same, the same story beats, uh, as the, as the teaser trailer, which is Snoopy's in his doghouse. Snoopy, you know, how he has his imagination and he's flying around after the Red Baron and, uh, you, you know, and then we end with the scene of Charlie Brown in the theater where he dumps popcorn all over on his head and he says, good grief. I mean, that's essentially the same trailer with different shots. Um, so they're really they I don't know whether like they're hiding it from, you know, they're waiting for the reveal or whether they just don't have enough of the rest of the film done to show it to us. Yeah. I, I think that's an interesting, interesting thing. What you just said actually kind of pointed out something humorous to me that it, it kind of does what, uh, well, it's sort of an, a cartoon inception. Uh, there's the uh, the story of Snoopy unfolding, and then there's Charlie Brown watching it with his friends in the theater. But then there, and there's another angle here, too, that it also kind of echoes what they did with the Muppets over the years, mm, where the Muppets yeah. were consciously aware that they were in a movie, making the movie, and they were unfolding <laughs> the movie at the same time. I bet you, though, this is where it stops, though, for the Charlie Brown cartoon, that they'll probably just do this sort of gag in the trailer just so that you see, feel like you're sort of inside of a joke in another world, and in their world, it kind of transports you there very quickly. I would be really surprised if they would actually carry that concept that that you are in their world and they're self-aware in their world in the movie itself, because that is such a huge, that would be something that's like practically a ripoff of the Muppets film. So I hope that they don't, they don't do that for peanuts. Yeah. It is interesting that they're in a theater and Charlie dumps the, the popcorn. I almost wonder if that was like a proof of concept shot. And so it's done and they have it and they can stick it in the trailer. And that would kind of, you know, be like in line with my other thinking that they don't have enough of the rest of the animation done to show us. And so mm. they're sticking that shot in there. That's one way you could look at it. The other way is that maybe it is like you're saying it's a movie within a movie that that would be frustrating because that really is the Muppets shtick. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't want to go there, but we'll see. And who, who are the producers for this one? The uh, Peanuts? Is it uh, Warner Brothers? You caught me with my pants down. Hang on. Well, get them back up. Peanuts. Let's look it up here. Um, <clears throat> okay, so uh, director is Steve Martino. Writer is Brian Schultz. Charles M. Schultz, who wrote the comic. You know, he wrote based on his comic strip. That's That's why he's credited um producer producer production companies 20th century fox and blue sky studios um i don't see a producer credit interesting but the studios that are attached to it are not known for their animated films so that's interesting it it, it seems to be becoming a a very pleasant surprise coming from a a studios that are not known for their animation so uh, good luck with that for them yeah, and I think, uh, like you said, the the other one that we've talked about a couple of months ago was the Popeye uh, film, and I, I think maybe there is a 
an awakening of we we went through this phase where you, you know like with the Garfield cartoon the, the modern one the new one that where it's just this cheap 3D nasty animation and they obviously haven't paid much attention to it and they don't care about it that much and I think there's a almost a reawakening or a resurgence of saying you know what what we used to have is good what can we recapture back from that you know and and bring it back with mm. with Popeye with with Snoopy with Peanuts I mean um. And, and what can we – how can we get back to classic material instead of making it you – know, you know, instead of instead of using – utilizing the technology we have now poorly? I feel like – you know, like a lot of new technologies, I feel this way about CGI in general. Like we overuse it now. I mean look at – you know, as much as I love Star Trek Into Darkness, look at Star Trek Into Darkness and how just CGI'd that thing was. And you, you look at the – the old movies before CGI was around and they, you know, or or CGI was just a baby, you know, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, they had this CGI scene in the middle of the Genesis planet, but it served a specific purpose. There it was, and then it was – like, and the rest of the film didn't have any CGI in it. So we've gone overboard with all this, and I think this is a course correction to try to get back and say what is the the meat and potatoes of what we're trying to do here. So mm. that makes me very hopeful. Very interesting. And speaking of classic material, we yes. also have the live-action Cinderella Midnight Changes Everything official trailer. I don't mean to hurry you, but you really haven't got long, Ella. That's better. They're made of glass. And they're really comfortable. Remember, the magic will only last so long. Won't you tell me your name? My name is... At the last stroke of midnight, the spell will be broken. And all will return to what it was before. That was a clip from the trailer uh, for, our, for, for the upcoming live-action film, Cinderella. What do, what do you think of this, Joe? My first impression was a little tainted by the new rendition of the fairy godmother. Um, honestly, <laughs> I was a Carter. little bit... Yes, uh, definitely bringing the spirit of Tim Burton to this character and Harry Potter uh, <laughs> witches. I, I don't know, just a, a little bit subtle, it, but it's there. It, it's, uh, it can't get away from Helena. Um, I'm, I'm seeing it coming through. And I, I definitely appreciate that there's some tongue-in-cheek humor that kind of uh, it's self-aware. Obviously, the characters are trying to be true to the story while also be true to the audience. That's a balancing act. You're playing up two different forms of sincerities. Uh, you're you're definitely uh, ambitious, shall we say, for Disney to realize that if they're going to pull this off, they have to acknowledge that the audience is grossly familiar with the material. Mm-hmm. And so they're breathing new life into it. They're going to show you some more stuff of characters that were not brought to life in the original um, cartoon. Like, for instance, one of the carriage drivers uh, you know, says, I- I'm a goose. I can't do this. And that's funny because, you know, the carriage drivers didn't talk in the cartoon. And so it's nice that they're turning the attention away from the mice. And they really didn't do much for Cinderella, though, in this trailer, which is a bit surprising. I think that the first trailer, the teaser, um, dwelled a lot on her beautiful blue dress and isn't she pretty? So all the little girls would get fascinated with this movie. And this one is trying to broaden your scopes and appreciation for the entirely expanded Cinderella universe. Yeah, and I have to say, like, I was a little skeptical of this film when I first started hearing about it. Um, you know, and, it, it, you know, Kenneth Branagh is directing it, and you've got, uh, you know, kind of a, uh, Lily James, who I've not heard a lot about. And I don't know, I was just really skeptical about this film. But then, you know, you've got Kate Blanchett signing on, and, uh, it seems like there was another name that got attached that I was like, oh, that's, that's interesting. 
And the first, you know, the first teaser where it was just, you know, the, the pan around the glass slipper, you know, um, the, the kind of the, the camera move around the glass slipper and, you know, the, the Disney, you know, big bombastic music and coming and what is it? Uh, when is this coming out in, uh, whatever, whenever it's coming out, coming in such and such a time, Disney's classic Cinderella. And I'm sitting here, this is doing nothing for me, but I don't know. The last couple of trailers are like, okay, I could see maybe grudgingly admitting that this film is okay we'll see you're gonna take the uh, the daughter out on a date night that's, that, that's, <laughs> that, that's what this movie is for we there is no other excuse for this we're two guys this is that's another podcast if we're going to talk about how much we love cinderella that's another podcast i mean i'm not opposed to doing a, an episode on it but you're i mean you're right that would be the guys under which i would do it is i would take my daughter natasha to see cinderella that that sounds like a good excuse to see it <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I have relented a little from my position that this is an unnecessary reboot or, or remake. Um, I don't know. I, I, I can see the merits of it, I suppose. And, and time oh, will I, tell. I do too. I have to be honest with you on that point. I, we could have a whole episode where we talk about the merits of a reboot of something very, um, out, uh, well, I don't want to say old fashioned, but a much older film. I've been thinking about this for maybe the last 10 years. I'm not opposed to remakes. I'm opposed to remakes of recent films. And I think that it's high time that Disney go back and make great representations, new representations of a lot of their early classics. Uh, for instance, I think that as, as absolutely uh, marvelous as the original Snow White was, I think that they could do a whole lot more with the Snow White story today, even in a post Shrek world, even <laughs> um, then they could early on when they were just making the original Snow White. They had mm-hmm. all kinds of clever constraints and they got very sophisticated about it and they overcame those constraints. And now, you know, I think that perhaps the first example of this was a few years ago, Disney made a live action uh, Peter Pan and it it is actually one of my favorite Disney films. It came out maybe around 2007, maybe 2006, I'm not sure. But that is a very well-made film, and it, it well-communicates the Peter Pan story so much more, I think, than the cartoons and other Peter Pan's uh, adaptations. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a little bit of an opposing side from you, Joe. I know you're, you're shocked, you're shocked no, that's to hear this. No, that never happens. <laughs> Are you drinking the same coffee you always – no. Okay, so um, – I am going to argue that in general, I do not agree with this idea that because there were constraints in place when the previous film was made, therefore we should make the film now that we have no constraints or less constraints or or whatever. I, I, I don't think that's a good way to look at it. If you look at some of, some of your favorite films, I would wager that a lot of your favorite films were made under massive constraints. And some of these bigger budget films, okay, yes, there are big budget films that do really well and that you're excited about them. The Avengers, Joss Whedon. Okay, that works sometimes, but sometimes the constraints are what makes things good. Think about, um, and, and, and there's other factors here, but think about Star Wars because we've talked about that recently on the podcast and we never talk about it, so I'm going to bring it up. <laughs> um, I'm kidding. Star uh, Wars bite. Yeah, Star Wars bite. So so think about Star Wars. You have the original trilogy and, and arguably the better, uh, well, without question, the better trilogy is the original trilogy, and they were made under massive constraints, uh, and, and the Empire Strikes Back had these huge budget constraints and, and, you know, you had a little bit bigger budget and, you know, you know, with, with Return of the Jedi. And so you started to see a little bit of George Lucas going, 
you know, eh, let's put this little bit of this in there, a little bit of that. Let's put some, you know, stupid humor in here. And then you come to the prequel trilogy of Star Wars, which has almost no constraints at all. George Lucas's, you know, and, and Lucasfilm are, you know, they have all kinds of money. They can do whatever they want. And George Lucas has all this technology at his disposal. And they did not make for better films at all in any way. <laughs> and, and sometimes the constraints make you make a better film. My favorite Star Trek film is still Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, which has the least budget of any of the Star Trek films. Um, very good very good point. And I, and I think I want to play both sides of the argument. I agree with myself, and I also agree with what you just said, sir. <laughs> well, I don't know how you – a house divided against itself cannot stand, Joe. I, I guess my point really is that I like to see what new creatives can do with older content. Remember that the original Snow White, the original Cinderella – were not the original sources of those fairy tales. What you had were classic fairy tales that were adapted to be cartoons. And as time has gone on, there have been a variety of other studios that have made cartoon and live action adaptations. But what you find is that they are in general hit or miss. I know that there is a Hans Christian Andersen Cinderella film that my mom, for instance, and my grandmother, and I know other women really liked back when it came out, I think in the late uh, 80s, or early 90s. And that movie didn't do it so much. I am glad that it did not become a revered fairy tale classic that has made it into the century because it just didn't deserve it. But I think that under the right circumstances, there are new kinds of constraints introduced. Like um, Steven Spielberg talked about them a lot in one of the books about his studio, DreamWorks, that just because you are a big name like Spielberg and you have all this prestige and you have lots of other creatives that want to surround you and feed off of your success, it doesn't mean that you will be successful. And when they were producing the early films for DreamWorks, even for the first whole 10 years, it was an uphill challenge. And even to say, like, make the Prince of Egypt, which was not a uh, an original adaptation of the biblical account, but it was a, a like a remake of an adaptation of the original account. They were... The, that is a, that was a reboot. And so you, you actually turned out with a pretty good cartoon like the Prince of Egypt. So I think I agree with you. You know, we, we see the, the earmarks of disaster for reboots that go awry, but I think that there are plenty of remakes and reboots that can definitely improve upon what we've seen in the past. Um, but that's a topic for another day. A definitely interesting conversation, though. I, I think that that's a, a great topic that we we keep coming back to. And I know that, like like you said, and like I, I think I've already established, I think that there are plenty of time, times when it can fall either way. Speaking of things that fall either way, sorry, <laughs> that was a terrible joke. I'm not sure where you're going with that transition. I'm, I'm anxious uh, to hear this. The, the, it, I'm, uh, um, I'm officially going to shred that one up and throw it in the wastebasket. Okay. We have a tribute video to actors we lost in 2014. And this video was made by uh, Joe Blow on YouTube. It's uh, six minutes and 17 minutes long, and it covers uh, lots of the highlights of several different actors, filmmakers in general, um, so that you get to see a glimpse of who they were, what, what made them special, what they were known for, and why we loved them so much, some of their star performances. And, um, I, I appreciate that you, d did you splice together the thumbnail image that you used on moviebite.com? I didn't, I found it. 
Okay, um, but that's a very good thumbnail image because it includes Lauren Bacall, and she was one of my favorite classic actresses. Tell me what some of the movies she's been in that you liked. Oh, she was in several Humphrey Bogart movies. Um, I'm a little rusty on their names off the top of my head, but I think one of them was The putting, Maltese Falcon. But yeah, and the she spot. wasn't. Well, she wasn't in many films. Her career was much shorter than other actresses in those days because after she became very romantically attached to Humphrey Bogart, she did less and less films. And then the films that she was a part of were mostly she was attached to them because Humphrey was involved. And then he died as a uh, relatively young man, so she just didn't make all that many films. Then she was on um, the something, something, something of the something train. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> It was it Alrighty was a gr- then. mystery of the something something train, and it was a, it was a great film that she made when she was much older. She was an older woman at the time, and I th- want to say that Sean Connery was in that film too. But I might be getting that mixed up. We'll put the right movie in the show notes. I'll look it up right now. Well, here's the list of of actors that we that they they noted in this video, which I recommend that you watch that 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 we lost. Uh, Bob Hoskins, Dick Smith, Eli Wallace, Hal Douglas, Harold Ramis, H.R. Geiger, James Garner, James Rebhorn, uh, James Shigeta, some of these foreign names get me, uh, Joan Rivers, Lauren Bacall, Mickey Rooney, Mike Nichols, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Richard Keel, uh, Richard Attenborough, Robin Williams, and Shirley Temple. Uh, those were the the just the ones that were highlighted that we lost last year. I'm sure there were others, but... Um, it's, it's just a reminder. Time marches on all these actors that we love. Uh, you know, they, you know, they're not going to be around forever. Um, and, uh, we definitely lost some, uh, some big names last year. Uh, Bob Hoskins, uh, boy, what a, what a great, uh, what a great actor. I mean, uh, could there have been a better Shmi uh, than, than <laughs> Bob Hoskins or, or, or even, uh, uh, who framed Roger Rabbit? I mean, can you imagine anybody else playing the part that he played there in Roger Rabbit? Um, and and Hal Douglas, I mean, he essentially created uh, what we think of now as the trailer voice uh, in a world, you know, that 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 deep, booming, uh, you know, voice that 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 does voiceovers and trailers. That's he he started that he did that, or at least that's the way I think of it. Oh, absolutely, and I think that even more so, he's going to be one, his voice will be one of those that characterized our generation. He, he, absolutely, because I cannot hear. I mean. When I hear uh, somebody say, you know, uh, in a world or, you know, from the from the imagination of so and so or whatever, you know, you always think of that original voice like it was always Hal Douglas that did that. And there have been others now and there are people who duplicate his style or who get close enough or who do their own thing, but they're still basing it on the work of Hal Douglas. Uh, it, he, he was just amazing. And it was it was sad to lose him. Um, you got Philip Seymour Hoffman in here. I mean, what a terrific actor. I mean, that's that's a huge loss to cinema. Um, Robin Williams and, 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 you know, I'm not a big fan of, of her films necessarily. There are a few that are okay, but Shirley Temple, um, you know, she made films when she was a little girl that, that I think we're all familiar with, uh, and she's gone. She, we, we lost Mm -hmm. her last year. So, you know, that she actually had a long political career as well. Interesting. I didn't, I don't know if I knew that. She was a foreign ambassador for the United States. I forget, uh, what country she was involved with most though. She Hmm. was a active duty for a good long time. The movie, yeah, the movie that I was thinking about with Lauren Bacall is Mystery on the Orient Express, mm-hmm. and that's a 1970s film. So I wasn't uh, mystery. This says Murder on the Orient Express. Uh, mystery. I think it's mystery. I'm click. I just clicked on the link you put, and it says Murder on the Orient Express. <sighs> okay, sorry again. Murder on the Orient. Same thing. And murder this is a, mystery. 
mysterious murder. <laughs> it's a mysterious film. This is a 1974 film uh, that will be in the show notes, which, by the way, as I am want to point out, are at moviebyte.com slash mbpodcast slash 121. Joe, do you want to talk about some films that I noted that I'm looking forward to this year? Yes, please. Actually, you know, it's it's interesting that you bring this up because it was just last week that we were talking about the movies of 2014. Wasn't it? Is that interesting? I, I It's funny how that works. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's it's like the turning of a page. Yeah, there, there's one there's one uh, film on, that's not on here that I forgot about completely and wish that I um, I had put it on here, and that is uh, Jupiter Ascending. I, I am looking forward to that film with much trepidation because I kind of don't think it'll be any good, but I kind of want it to be really good. Uh, so I, I, I failed to put that on this list. I, I don't know how that slipped through the cracks, but it, this wasn't a comprehensive list anyway. This is just a, hey, I, looked, I scanned the list of films that were upcoming, and these are the ones that caught my eye. Um, so, so looking forward to February the 13th, we have Kingsman, the secret service. I'm, I'm becoming more interested in this film. Uh, I was, I was sort of mediocre toward, I didn't love, I didn't love the idea. I didn't hate the idea, but as I've been seeing the, uh, the, the, the trailers and the material and, and just kind of learning more about this film and knowing that Matthew Vaughn directed it, he's done some pretty great work with uh, X-Men first class. I loved, uh, the film that he did stardust, a great, great film. Um, yeah, I I'm really interested to see what he's doing here. I mean, it's got some uh, it's got some names in it. It's got Samuel L. Jackson. It's got Colin Firth. Um, you know, I mean, I'm I'm interested. What about you? You know, the first thing that came to mind when I saw your list was mm, these were all popcorn films. Um, but that's not to say that we are uncultured like we have talked about before on the podcast. Well, I I was actually looking for some that weren't, but they're not. I think like you, you've noted before that good films are not announced nearly as much in advance as these popcorn films. No, they are not. They get short notice. Yeah. Marketing. Uh, you see the trailer a few months before they are in, in theaters and you usually don't see as many trailers. And it just it, the Internet at large is not going to talk about them as much. Yeah, so it'll, I, I'm definitely looking forward to see what's not a popcorn film. I, I probably should have noted that in this uh, in this looking forward to. Uh, although I do like a good popcorn flick. I mean, that's just me. I, I know that uh, you know a lot of oh popcorn film, you know whatever. But uh, you know, it doesn't have to be an Oscar winner for me to love it. Um, no, of course not. I'm, all all entertainment that is entertaining deserves to be noted. Yeah, I will. I will just mention. I uh, Jupiter Ascending is coming out February sixth. It didn't make this article, but I wish that it would have uh, because again, I, I want it to be good. So we'll see. There was a trailer I saw in uh, tonight uh, or today. I mean, when I saw the movie The Imitation Game, uh-huh. a trailer for a film with uh, what is his name, Chris Hemsworth. Basically, it's the story behind Moby Dick. Hmm. Do you know anything about this one? I think I saw that trailer. Um, let's see if I can find the name of that film uh, real quick. You you riff on it a little bit. Sure. Well, the trailer caught my attention because it has Chris Hemsworth very early in the trailer, and he is on a old-fashioned sailing ship. And very quickly, it establishes that this is a period piece, not something attached to Thor or race cars. And so I was excited. And then we see the giant whale, and he is clearly trying to hunt down this whale. And there are other fishermen that are trying to do it too. And um, then you just see lots and lots of scenes where this whale is attacking the ship, where they're trying to chase the whale. And I thought for sure this was going to be some sort of modern adaptation with huge special effects budget to tell Moby Dick. But then I thought to myself, but Chris Hemsworth, he's a little bit on the young side to be the captain. And then the reveal came in captions near the end of the trailer that this is the story that Moby Dick was based on. 
And I was like, oh, well, that's fascinating. That's one of those movies that's, you know, not going to be a, be a popcorn flick. It's, uh, even if it has a big budget or lots of special effects and CG to pull mm. off the whale, mm-hmm. and it will garner a lot of attention. It's, um, it's definitely one of the films I'm going to look forward to more now. And uh, if we only knew what it was called, the heart of the sea, I in, think it in, might be what it is. In the heart of the sea, it will be uh, in on the thirteenth of March, two thousand fifteen. Based on the eighteen twenty event, a whaling ship is preyed upon by a sperm whale, stranding its crew at sea for ninety days, thousands of miles from home. It features Chris Hemsworth, Celian Murphy, uh, Charlotte Riley, Ben Wishaw. Um, so yeah, I think that's the one you're talking about. Hmm. All right. Uh, so the next film that I, I put on my list that I'm looking forward to with, again, I don't think it's going to, and this, I, I think I qualified this. I'm, I'm reading here real quick. Yeah, I did qualify this. Insurgent, March 20th. I don't think this film is going to be any good, uh, but, but Divergent was surprisingly good. Not great, but surprisingly good. And I'm hoping the same for Insurgent. I don't see how it's possible. And it was one of the ones that caught my eye. Again, this is a list of stuff that caught my eye when I was scanning through. Uh, so, um, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. And, and, and it has, um, oh, what's her name? Uh, uh, insurgents. Let me, uh, Shailene Woodley, uh, who, who can be pretty good in stuff. So I'm, uh, you know, uh, on the other side of the, the coin, you know, you've got Jay, uh, Jay <laughs> Courtney, which not so much. Um, so we'll see. We'll see. I'm, I'm interested. I'm, Interesting. I'm, I'm prepared to be let down, but I'm interested. Well, very good, sir. Next up, Avengers Age of Ultron in theaters May the 1st. Um, mm. And here, there are two reasons why I'm looking forward to this. Two big reasons. One, Joss Whedon goes without saying. He's the greatest thing that ever happened to TV. Um, and now he's happening to Marvel. Well, I mean, what can you say? It's, I want this. I want more of him. I'm sad that he's not going to be directing the one after this. But he's he's giving us Avengers and Avengers Age of Ultron, and I'm happy with that. Mm. We're talking about the man here who gave us Firefly and Buffy and Angel and he wrote, you know, big swaths of Toy Story. So, um, yes, I think that I am really looking forward to Avengers Age of Ultron. Um, and then the second reason is that the Marvel films just keep getting better and better. And uh, I think that this is probably going to be their best one yet. What do you think? I have to agree. Absolutely. I, I cannot think of a better upcoming Avengers movie, except for one that has um, got two Joss Whedon's attached to it. Two Joss Whedon's? That's not going to happen. So this is as good as it gets. I don't know what you mean by two Whedon's, two Joss Whedon's though. I'm just saying the only way you could outdo Whedon is if you had two. Oh, I see. Uh, sure. Okay. We'll go with that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm pretty happy. Sorry that, uh, my humor failed. Your humor just completely. (sighs) My mind was actually another place. Uh, I'm sorry. If if I have a good excuse, it's that I was thinking about the movie we're about to review. (laughs) I, I kind of cocked my head and watched it sail over. <laughs> okay. Um, so this one, I don't know that I would call this a popcorn flick. Uh, Inside Out in theaters June the 19th. It's Pixar films, yes, I suppose you could call them popcorn flicks, but they're usually more than that. There's usually something more behind them. Not Maybe not with some of the more recent ones like Cars too, but but I feel like this is going to be more of a little bit more of a thinker than, than just a popcorn flick. Oh, yeah. Um, and Cars 2 summed up in one word merchandising yeah (laughs) sure and this doesn't look like it's going to be that kind of film no although i can see them making toys and dolls from the the different various emotions um but i think that this is more of a a story that's on somebody's uh heart over there at pixar that's what it feels like this feels like a passion project um and it definitely if you've seen the trailer for this it's very interesting um and you know i don't know i'm i'm 
I'm looking forward to this, hoping that this is Pixar's redemption, because we've seen with Monsters University that they still have it in them to do good work. Monsters University was fine, um, and it was certainly better than any you know what they put out previously uh, for the last couple of years. Um, and I'm glad that they've taken – they basically canceled any movies they had in 2014 and said, we're regrouping, we, we're you know, redrawing, we're coming – we're going we're gonna to be back with you in 2015. That's essentially what they've said. So mm. I'm, I'm, I think that this is going to be good. I have to agree, sir, and I have a very good feeling about it as well. One thing that has um, occurred to me as a Pixar enthusiast is that the last time we saw them portray characters that looked like monsters, they were monsters. Um, interestingly enough, the emotions are characterized as these anamorphic, you know, color, colorful creatures. It looks like something like a cross between a Muppet, a, um, and a, you know, a monster from monsters incorporated Mm -hmm. yet they're characterizing human beings. So it's an interesting, uh, play on the analogy that, you know, they are the monsters within our emotions are, uh, like little monsters inside of us that control everything we do in our interests. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely an interesting take, and I, I'll be interested to see where they go with it. I have some worries about how that's going to work, but um, overall, I, I tend to still have a little bit of faith in Pixar, and I think they'll pull it off. Mm. Up next, Minions in theaters July 10. Um, Despicable Me and Despicable Me 2 were, to me, surprisingly good. I don't see how a Minions film is what I want or how it's going to be any good, but I'm willing to give it a shot, so I put it on the list. See, that's funny. I actually was grossly disappointed with Despicable Me 2 or mm. Dis- Me 2 or whatever it was called because it felt like the storytelling uh, was lacking for an otherwise great collection of characters. The first film just hit it on the nose for me. The Minions movie interested me more because if they're going to go ho hog and just give us all the minion glory, then I think that there's loads of comedy potential here. Oh, there's sure. There's a lot of comedy to be had there. And to be fair, despicable me and despicable me too had uh, a lot of comedy, maybe 50%, but there was a story and heart in there that drove those films that I think is going to be absent from this film. I only put this on the list because, again, it caught my eye, and I loved the two Despicable Me films, so uh, I'm, I'm worried about this. I'm worried about this. Mm. But I'm looking forward to it, uh, I, and, and if nothing else, I think we'll get a humorous Minions film. The, the, the Minions never fail to deliver humor. I mean, so we'll certainly get that, I, but I'm, I'm wanting something more from this franchise, universe, whatever you want to call it. Um, I want more from it. Of course. Then you have the Mark- Mockingjay Part 2. Yes, I was one of the four people in the world who liked part one, uh, and I'm looking forward to its completion in part two, and I feel like they're going to improve on the ending that the book gave us. I hope they are, because um, as I wrote here, uh, the the third book, my my wife and I both um, read the books, and uh, the the end of the third book made her retroactively hate the series such that she can't even watch the films with me. Um, and, and she wants me to tell her if they rectify that situation, uh, in mm. part two so that she can maybe go back and, and feel better about watching the films. So she is hoping that the movies are different from the books. And they have been changing subtle things that, that indicate that they're going in a slightly different and improved direction because the ending of the, of the books really is kind of a stinker. It, it really wasn't that satisfying while the overall, I still like the books in in a way and the overall story is good it just feels like she, she didn't know how how to end it and i i hope that with some good screenwriters in play here they can fix that and i think they will i hope they will and it'll mm-hmm. be interesting to see and and of course we got you know it's we get a little bit more performance from philip seymour hoffman 
possibly the last new film we'll see from him on screen because that'll be in the, on November twentieth. So, interesting. Yeah. Well, sir, that is very interesting. And then you have Star Wars episode, what is this, 511. So that is seven, The (laughs) Force Awakens. Tell me about this movie. So this movie is about a war in the stars, and it features spaceships and laser cannons and lots of crazy camera maneuvers, apparently. And apparently it happens somewhere in the world of gods and exodus in the the, um, the uh, desert. Yeah, the desert. (laughs) Sure. Uh, it happens in a galaxy far, far away is what I've been given to understand. Mm. Um, I I do think the film will be good, and it can't be worse than the prequels. We we beat this horse to death because as as we joke about the Star Wars bite, but uh, I don't. I certainly cannot be worse. There is no possible way that it can be worse than the Phantom Menace. Uh, so I, I yeah. What you don't think it's possible? You think it's possible for it to be worse? Oh, I, I think it's possible. Mm. I just don't think it will approach that kind of horror. No, I think it's going to be way better. I think it's going to be more closely related to what we liked about star Wars in the original trilogy, but I do have some trepidation and, 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 and some of that is JJ Abrams. I think he goes for that easy sentimentality and nostalgia and, and and avoids good drama. Sometimes Um, uh, he gave us a star Trek film that we wish that we like, but wish were better. Um, You know, I don't think, I don't think it's possible to make another star Wars film as good as the empire strikes back. So we we're, we're already below that bar. Um, and I'm afraid that they're going to try too hard to reconcile both of the trilogies, and we know there's already wild inconsistencies, uh, mostly because George Lucas is an idiot. Um, so I hope they stick with the original trilogy wherever possible as the canon for the story. Um, right. I, unfortunately, that is the I most don't, in- Yeah. That's the most important thing. I wouldn't be surprised when this movie comes out if the general audience and critic consensus is similar to that of The Return of the Jedi. Mm-hmm. Um, just all things considering like the consensus on Rotten Tomatoes for Return of the Jedi, just uh, reading it aloud here and sort of uh, adapting it to The Force Awakens, it might go like this. Though failing to reach the cinematic heights of its predecessors, for The Force Awakens remains an entertaining sci-fi adventure and a fitting and a continuation to the classic trilogy. And I could definitely see how this uh, movie could evoke that spirit. Yeah, so so the you know my trepidations aside, I mean it's Star Wars. I'm gonna go see it and I'm gonna like it, duh, right? You know, um, there's again, there's no way it can be worse than the prequels. Uh, we're putting the original cast back together for one last hurrah. How awesome is that? I mean, you know, uh, George Lucas has nothing to do with these, this film. I'm happy about that. Oh, he, he has something to do with this film. He created the universe. That's it. He created the playground, and now there are other kids playing on the playground. After he created the universe, then he left it's, it, and now we're all agnostics. It's, it's time for the big boys to come and do some professional work here. Um, uh-huh. The universe th- that he created, though, it is a rich place that is good for stories, and uh, there's a lot here to tell. I, I know that there's a gold mine of stories here to tell, and so I'm happy about this. Uh, and then reasons six, seven, and eight that I listed in my article, Millennium Falcon, Lightsabers, and OMG, Star Wars. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm happy. I'm, it's probably... In a way, at least in some part of me, this may be the film I'm looking forward to the most. If there was a Star Trek film coming out the same year, would you be more interested in the Star Trek film? Hmm. Mm-mm-mm. Probably. Mm. Probably. I mean, um, mm. probably, because I, I do prefer Star Trek, but I don't know that this new incarnation <sighs> I prefer more than Star Wars. I don't know about that. And that is why you fail. 
<laughs> I I love them both. I have I have them both in my heart. Is that not okay? Mm, but I only have one father. All right, so uh, should we move on? <laughs> I, I think we probably should. We we have been waiting to get here all podcast, all this episode, this entire. We've podcast. been waiting to get to this movie for an entire month, sir. Yeah, actually, we have. It was in limited release for a while, and uh, we weren't able to see it. And then uh, the holidays happened. And uh, anyway, we're going to review this evening the Imitation Game. Are you paying attention? You are in control of what is about to happen. Welcome to Enigma. It's the greatest encryption device in history, and the Germans use it for all communications. Enigma is unbreakable. What if only a machine can defeat another machine? Ready? Yes. Could machines ever think as human beings do? That was a clip from the trailer for The Imitation Game. The Imitation Game uh, came out in limited release on November the 28th of 2014 and came to a wide release finally on December the 25th, 2014. Uh, it, it had a budget of $15 million. Opening weekend on the limited release, it made 479000 The wide release of uh, December the 25th weekend, it made $7.9 million. And the worldwide gross is at fifty two point seven million, so it's made a little bit of coin. Um, the critic consensus is that with an outstanding starring performance from Benedict Cumberbatch illuminating its fact based story, the Imitation Game serves as an uh, an eminently well made entry in the prestige bi- biopic genre. Director Morton Tildum, writers Andrew Hodge Hodges who wrote the book, and Graham Moore who wrote the screenplay, and it stars Benedict Cumberbatch. Kira Knightley, Matthew Good, Rory Kinnear, Alan Leach, Matthew Beard, Charles Dance, and Mark Strong. The composer was Alexander Desplat, and what a great score that was. Am I right? It, mm. it was fantastic. Um, I have to agree. I'm going to go back and listen to it probably tomorrow. I have already listened to it. Uh, I've listened to the entire start soundtrack twice today while I was working. Um, let me let me just play a little bit of that. I mean, it, it's so fantastic. Great work. I have not yet been disappointed by an Alexander Desplat soundtrack. Um, I think he's a very kind of undersung composer. Um, he's done some fantastic work on Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Um, there's some other films that he scored recently that have just been fantastic, even if the films weren't quite as fantastic. But mm. he, he wrote a really fantastic theme, I think, that really works well here. Um, just listen to that, Joe. Just listen to that. It's very lovely. It reminds me of A Beautiful Mind, but the A Beautiful Mind's soundtrack was not as good as how it sounded in the actual movie. I have a good feeling about this one, though, that it'll probably sound just as enjoyable on its own merits. Oh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it today. I, again, like I said, I listened to it twice, and a lot of times, um, if I'm listening to the soundtrack, it might end, and then after a while I'll realize, oh, I'm working without music and I'll go play something else, but this was like, I want that back. Um, it, it really worked well. I mean, you can hear some of the motifs that Alexander Desplat tends to, to use, but they're, oh, yeah. they're, they're really mixed together well here. Reminds me of Thomas Newman's work where he's really setting the tone and mood rather than trying to create a, like an epic um, theme. And he's definitely not trying to be in your face with setting that mood and tone, like, say, Hans Zimmer is, who wants to force-feed you the mood and the tone every time. Yeah. 
This is where it gets really good right here. I don't know how much of this I can play. I've never, never looked you, into the legality yeah, of that. Yeah, you're probably already broke copyright rule, but, you know, we're promoting it, so everybody go out and buy it, and then nobody loses. Please buy it. it it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. Great stuff. It's available on Spotify, um, so uh, I, I, I haven't looked at the other music services. I use Spotify, so um, I don't, you use uh, RDO, right? Yeah, I, yes, I do, sir, and I'm sure it's there. Okay. Wonderful. Probably the best score. Uh, I know that we're in 2015, but this is a 2014 movie. One of my favorite scores from 2014 films. So with that, Joe, why don't you tell us about the storyline? Based on the real life story of brilliant cryptanalyst Alan Turing, the film portrays the nail-biting race against time by Turing and his brilliant team of codebreakers at Britain's top-secret government code and cipher school at Bletchley Park during the darkest days of World War II. And that is what the movie is all about. But if you really wanted to get a, the, the, the real gist, let me tell you, it's a story about several insecure geniuses trying to crack the code to save the world. Uh, millions upon millions of lives were at stake at this time. They knew that many, many uh, British people and other kinds of people were dying every day in the war. They were concerned that their entire country would be taken over by Nazis. And their best bet was to crack the Nazis' communication codes. So yeah. with this one group, they set out to crack all the codes with a machine that no one had ever conceived of before. And nobody believed it was even possible. But then Alan Turing turned everybody around with the help of a few other people, uh, characters in the movie, as it's portrayed in the movie. And they saved a lot of people. They got this machine going and ultimately became the grandfather of all computers. It's interesting. I'm uh, I'm what you might call a little bit of a nerd, uh, you know, certainly a geek, and I, I, I write code for a living. That's what I do. I develop websites. Um, and so in a general sense, like, I, I get kind of what was going on here, but it's such a different world. Um, you, you know, I, I write code, and yet what they were doing, I doubt if I'd be interested in computer stuff if I was trying to do what they were doing. Um, right. It was like they were building one computer that only ran one program really well, and it didn't have a great user interface. And <laughs> it didn't have a user interface at all. You plugged in wires and cords and you know switch circuits manually and and all kinds of stuff. It was it's very interesting though because because Alan Turing is considered the father of modern computing. Uh, the, the work that he did makes the computer that you and I the computers that you and I are using possible. Without the work that he did, we would not have the computers that, that we're using. So. It's very interesting that this story has not yet been told in film form, as far as I know. Um, I was especially impressed also by the supporting cast of characters, uh, Kieran Knightley as Joan mm-hmm. Clark. Yeah, absolutely. And she plays just an incredibly significant role in Alan's life. It, if it weren't for Joan, then we probably would not have the Alan Turing that we know. Yeah. As they are portrayed in the film. I did a lot of uh, looking up and researching stuff as, as, as good as you can in, in the time allotted and on the internet. Uh, when I was writing my review of the imitation game, just seeing what was factual in the movie and what was not, and the the the, the bare bones of the of the the structure of the film, the, the things, the events that generally happened are true to life. And you know, Joan Clark is a real character. She really was engaged to Alan Turing. Uh, she really apparently did not react uh, poorly at all when she found out he was a homosexual. Uh, and she still wanted to get married. And then event eventually, now this is where it does differ from the film. Eventually. They they did go on after that conversation, but then eventually he did call it off because he could not go on with it. Um, so, you know, all these things, the bare bones, kind of the structure of the film 
really did happen. I mean, in 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 general sense, the film is true to life. Um, so yeah, I, 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 uh, I enjoyed that aspect of it. Um, even, you know, you te- you know, that, that, uh, biopics are going to take liberties with the story that, that that's just what, what they do. You know, you have to create drama and tension. This movie is very fresh in my mind cause I saw it this afternoon and I'm still blown away by the craftsmanship in this film. We did not see very many films that were this well honed. I know that many people were, are going to find fault with this film because they either didn't like one of the three main plots. There were three time frames of Alan Turing's life that were explored Mm -hmm. and they were all interwoven at the same time. So you saw a little bit of these three different times of his life throughout the entire film. And in order to characterize the three separate sections, sometimes they had to refer to the location or to the year in which the following scene was taking place. And in other ways, they would just characterize a, the era of his childhood by making it look a little bit greener and blowing out the colors well, no, so see, most of the things were desaturated. I would disagree with that. I, I actually found it refreshing that they didn't do any of that. I didn't t- detect any affecting of the picture that would give you a sense of, of a flashback or a dream or, or, or a – none of that. They didn't employ any of those techniques. I didn't feel like they did. I felt mm. like they established the time frames very well. They gave you enough information and they gave you visual markers. Like when you're seeing this guy, this is young Alan Turing. When you're seeing this location, you're at this school that he was at. You know, there, here's the headmaster. You know, and when you're seeing this stuff, you're in this time frame. It, it, was, it was the best – Nonlinear storytelling I've ever seen. You're absolutely right about the craftsmanship of this film. I don't know that I saw another film uh, in 2014 that was as well crafted as, as this film. You can tell that they spent a lot of time polishing this film in the editing bay. Almost like it was a Transformers film. I'm sorry, I can't do it with a straight face. <laughs> uh, no, they spent a lot of time uh, honing this thing in. They, I guarantee you that they spent a lot of time in the editing bay, not just in the you know the pre-production and the production of this film, but the post-production of this film. Fantastic work crafting the the way that the story is put together. Um, I normally don't like nonlinear storytelling. I normally think that mm. it's a cop out or that it doesn't work well or that it's hard to follow. And I was never confused by any of the cuts in this film that would cut to a different, different part of the story when he was a child or when he was breaking the Enigma code or in the current setting of 1951 or two or whenever that was when he was being arrested for indecency. I didn't find any of that confusing. I was instantly able to identify where we were, but it wasn't jarring. The, like you said, the, I mean, there's just no better way to put it. The craftsmanship of this film is top notch. I have, I, I'm pretty sure if this film, if I had seen this film in 2014 before I made my top list, I know uh, Fizz is jumping up and down about this right now because he always scolds me for this, but it, it, I should have waited to make my top list. But if I had made my top list after I'd seen this film, I think I would have called this the, the best film of 2014. Wow. <laughs> That is very high praise. Drop the mic, walk away. Absolutely. We have no more to say here. (laughs) No, we have a lot to say here. So go ahead, Joe. Yes. Under the likes category, another thing that was really impressive to me was really the script. Um, There were a few lines that I was not very fond of that they tried to overuse or they pushed too far. But in general, I like a movie that has very strong dialogue that is very personality driven as well as like got a broad vocabulary and it's just interesting. Like, you know, it seems like a lot of people want what the visuals are to be interesting to them. The, the explosions should feel more mushroomy 
and the robots should look like they're heavier and the the muscle tone on that superhero should look more shaded you know i i, I don't ultimately care as much about those details as i care about the overall experience and one of the oh, huge characteristics of the overall experience is the dialogue and i think that a lot of film suffers from poorly presented dialogue these days so what we have here was actually quite the opposite. Every character was well represented. It didn't seem like they said the writer said, "Well, you know, this guy, he's only got about, you know, um 5 minutes of, uh, you know, actual screen time, so he's only got like 3 lines and because of that, we're just not going to give him the attention he deserves." They gave the, all the characters the attention that they deserved. Case in point would be the uh, the guy who turned out to spoiler alert, the little minor spoiler alert, the guy who turned out to be the uh, Russian spy uh, who had the um, I can't remember his name, but he had the, um, the Scottish accent, and he didn't have that much dialogue. But what dialogue he had that that scene, that one scene where he was alone with uh, uh, Alan Turing, Benedict Alan Cumberbatch, Turing. Um, that one scene where he was alone with him. It was fantastic. I mean, I loved it. There, there wasn't like he didn't have to explain in great detail anything. He's just like, oh, you know, yep, you found out I, I'm a spy. But guess what? Here's here's the repercussions if you tell, and I'm I'm on your side, and we're working together. And and that, I mean, it was a fantastic scene, well written, well paced, and that's that, that kind of encapsulates just the entire movie, really. I completely agree. And what was that character's name again? John Carncross. Is that the no, one John that the, uh, Karen Cross? That that was the other. But the character that you're thinking of was Superintendent Smith? No. Anyway, this guy, if we can find him on IMDb. I'm looking. Um the point I uh, the, uh, I wanted to reference him by name was that I was actually really taken by him. I thought that he was going to be the the truest, the noblest of the guys on the Codebreakers team. Oh, that's him. Because it seemed Yeah, John John Carecross. Okay, because as he was characterized in the film, he was the first one to seem to like catch on to the nuance of Alan Turing. He was the first one to recognize, no, he really is a genius. He's he's the real deal. And while other men were still berating him, you know, deriding him and mm-hmm. uh, just shunning him, this guy was taking the time to observe Turing before he judged him. Yes. And I really was impressed by that. So I was thinking, okay, this is a good guy. He is going to come out as one of Alan's best friends. But then it turns out, actually, there's more to him than meets the eye and you have to be afraid of him. <laughs> Yeah, and and I would actually that that kind of I kind of forgot about this, but there is one minor dislike here, and that is when uh, Stuart Menzies, the uh, MI6 agent played by Mark Strong, he says, "Yeah, we've known he is for months. He, you know, da da da, and he did this thing, and 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 uh, we've known that he was a double agent for months and months, and uh, it's because he's sloppy and he's not all that bright." And I thought that you know that does not jive with what we've seen from this character up to this point. Uh, I thought that that was the only, that, that was the one criticism I have uh, in that aspect, and that's just minor little sloppy story point there. Mm, I actually thought that that was more of uh, a way to describe the character that was saying those things mm. because he he had disdain for the coders in general. He has ad- admiration really for just the two or the number one that shines the brightest, yeah, and maybe any so. of the others just pale in comparison to him. Uh, that's how I interpreted it. He seemed to be a very arrogant man. And when the original crew of coders could not crack the code and then Alan Turing shows up and he is the one who really makes it work, then, of course, he's going to slight all the other guys' involvement. Um, another thing that I really enjoyed 
was the way that they captured the um, the time period, because there were moments when they they allowed like narration to come into play where you were hearing like the news bulletins and seeing original World War II um, various clips, uh, you know, like real stock footage. Things that oh, would have been yeah, played yeah, in theaters yeah. in the day, but then interwoven with the, with those were actual like, uh, like recreations of little scenes and snippets of battlefields and action in the cities and the the, the damages, the ravages of war. So there were times when you saw the tanks crossing over the plains, you saw the the you know the city cr- crushed by the bombs, you saw the air raids from a bird's eye view and the, the devastation that bombs was causing beneath and even though most of those clips that were interwoven that were made fabricated just for the film were unfortunately CGI, even though they were showing it a little bit on the edges, it did not take me out of the film. No, not at all. I, I knew that they were CGI. I knew we're not looking at models. It'd have been nicer if they were able to create like bigotures like they used for the Lord of the Rings films so that things would feel more realistic to the naked eye. But even so, this worked it, 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 mixing the stock footage uh, with these grainy shots of the war scenes and then jumping through those back and forth to Alan's story. It gave you a great sense of the passing of time. And this is one of my bigger complaints about movies in general is that a lot of the movies feel like they happen overnight. Yes. The oh, hero, totally. Yes. It, it just irks me so bad that the bad guy ruins the world and the hero saves the day overnight and gets the girl like that happens all of the time. Whereas this film, it, it, it very clearly not only defines three different time periods of Alan's life so that you're seeing events of his childhood uh, events of his, um, his early adult age and events of his older adult age. You also get to see lots of passing of time for each of these time frames of Alan's life. And that doesn't mess up the story. It does not mess up the cohesion of the story. And then you see the world aging and time passing, the war carrying on around them. And it was extremely well executed. Yeah, I'm going to piggyback on that a little bit, but take a little bit different angle. We we did get some, you know, some CGI war stuff, but not enough that made me worry about it. Not even enough that I – It did. I mean, in retrospect, yeah, absolutely it was CGI – but I didn't at the time register it, and then it, of course, like you said, at times they would also cut to shots of Hitler and and things. But but none of this was oversold. Like they didn't use it in place of action. Like because this is not an action film, we got to get something in here that the people will be drawn to, you know. And and it, so you got just a little taste of the war, but it was not a primary character. It was a very much a background character to what was really going on here, which is we're going to end the war by breaking the encryption of the Germans. Um, and, and that's what they did. That's what the story was about. And so the, the war was a character, but it was very much a background character and it was kept in its place. We didn't go to gruesome shots it, and, and these things have, have their place. Don't get me wrong. There are, there are several World War II movies that I feel like are must watch movies that are gruesome and gritty and give you a real sense of how bad war is, why you don't want to see World War III, um, and, and why we should avoid war at all costs. But this film is not that film, and it's it's better off for being the film that it is. I, I really appreciated how well this was put together, and that it gave you a taste, but it didn't it didn't overindulge in that. Mm. So well, I, I think I've covered most of our likes. Um, one other uh, thing, I guess, that we should emphasize. 
one other, well, you go ahead and say what you want. The one other thing that we should really hone in here is that this is a brilliant performance by Benedict Cumberbatch. That was, we've already absolutely. addressed some of the cast, but largely the reason, the main reason you want to watch this film is either going to be because you care about historical biopics or you care about Benedict Cumberbatch. And yeah, he really makes this movie. Absolutely. Let's not let's be clear here. Mark Benedict Cumberbatch has played some amazing roles over the last several years. Um obviously he has inhabited the character of Sherlock. Um he was Khan. Um let's see, what else has he done here? Um he he's just done so many great things. He's been so many great characters, and he's done just amazing smog. things. He was Smaug. Um and yet, I think this may be his best role. He is, I hope this isn't his peak, but man alive, he nailed this. Um, this was at, this was one of the things I was about to say. If you don't touch on this, you're crazy. Um, perfect casting and, and perfect indwelling and inhabiting of that character. Like, you, he is such a character actor, and it, it just, it's amazing. I don't know how else to describe it, Joe. I, I, re- I literally have no words for just what a performance this was. And and not only his performance, mm-hmm. not only his performance, but we got great supporting roles. And and you can't have these roles taking over the film, but they have to be good. You had uh, Mark Strong, the MI6 agent, turned in an amazingly solid performance. Uh, you know, and his role was probably the least of the supporting roles, but yet if so vital, and and it could have been screwed up so easily. And he he played that you know perfectly. Uh, Matthew Good as as Hugh. Uh, who at first did not like ben, uh, Alan Turing, and then later came to grudgingly show admiration and finally became his friend. What a great performance! And then probably the best supporting performance. And, and I know people are, oh no, you know not you know she does she's never whatever. Uh, people don't like her, but Kira Knightley, what a great performance! Uh, just just amazing, just fantastic. Very true, sir. Okay, so are you ready to move on to your dislikes? Uh, let me look over here. Let's see. Uh, not an action film. I've already touched on that. Um, oh, I, I wanted to talk about how this film kind of explores the relationship of bullying and how it affects you later in life. Um, and to some extent, I don't know, like, um, it is kind of known that uh, Alan Turing had a kind of a, a unique personality. I don't know how irascible he actually was as he is in this film. But at least in this film, uh, it's just an interesting interplay between, you know, we're, we're kind of seeing this happen now where the computer nerds of today, they're they're more of the esteemed people. It's easier for them to get jobs now, whereas before, you know, back in the 80s, 90s, whatever, and, and, and certainly before, if you were, more, you know, uh, a uh, a desk jockey or a, a somebody who, who was interested in these geeky things, you were nothing. And and it's kind of been turned on its head and, it, it, you know, so it's hard for us to think about the the way that Alan Turing saw the world at the t- at that time. People looked down on him and, and, and you've got that great performance from the commander uh, again, totally fictional. That did not really happen, but it worked well in the context of the film where he's the military guy and he's the military might. And he looks down on all these people who sit, at, you know, sit around and, 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 and play with uh, electronics, you know, and, and Charles Dance was the name of the commander Denniston. Um, so I, I really enjoyed that aspect of this film. Uh, in addition, I loved the way this film built tension with drama rather than blowing stuff up again. I've, I've, I've meant, I've alluded to it, but this was, this was a film about solving a puzzle and the tension, you know, and then in, in the tension of keeping the secret, I really loved that scene where, 
uh, the the youngest of the guys breaking the code. When they broke the code, he meet and they found out that the ship that this kid's brother was on was about to be attacked. Let's immediately let the let's let the military know. Let's get them to call that off and 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 you know get the ships out of the way and and know that you can't do that because you'll let the Nazis know that you now can break the code and it will you won't yes you'll save lives now a few lives but you won't be able to stop the war and save potentially thousands and millions of lives. It's such a such a great scene in the way that played out. Um, great drama. It's something that that sort of drama is something that's really lacking in a lot of modern films. Hmm. Very interesting. Something along the the lines that is something that you mentioned a few seconds ago was the, um, the historical changes. Do you, you have any more details on changes that you would like to mention about this, uh, film versus the historical account? Cause I, I don't know any. So I was wondering how close it was to the historical account. Um, so, I mean, I'm about to touch on one that's in my dislikes. Most of them were fine. I, I mentioned the one with, um, uh, Joan Clark and, and the way that they, they did not have this uh, big spat the way they did in the movie when he, he mentioned that he was a homosexual to her and said, I can't go through with it. And she said, well, I, you know, and, and this is true where, where when he said that, she said, I don't care. Uh, we still, we, we like each other very much. We'll, we'll have a better marriage than most people. We can talk. We enjoy being in each other's company. We should still get married. And, and he's, he, in the movie, he, then he says he can't go through with it. He never did love her. He just wants her to, and then she slaps him and they have this thing where, the, where, you know, she, she storms off. That didn't happen in real life. Um, and, and they kind of over dramatize that. I felt, I felt like the movie would have been stronger if they just stuck to, to real life, but that was not, I, I, it's not enough of a, a thing for me to put in my dislikes. Cause that, you know, either way it, it they, they ended up calling off the engagement. Um, the, the the biggest change that I again I think for the sake of the story right, so they were engaged in real life oh yes absolutely and 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 when she you know apparently when she found out that he was a homosexual when he told her she didn't mind she did you know where most women would be like oh my gosh get away from me uh, for, for what it's I'm not saying that's good or bad but for the historical record I think that you can fudge a little bit there and expand on their relationship and create a argument between them where they have a disagreement about where they should take their relationship based on their values right because that probably actually I mean like think about it they are, these are two human beings that are trying to establish a intimate relationship and even though we may not have a historical account, uh, account record of their arguments, in all likelihood, they probably had their 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 riffs on these issues. Oh, sure. So I don't see how that could be uh, untrue to life. The other big change, and again, I, I don't fault the, sto- the the film for this because it's for the sake of the story and telling the story in this way. So it's fine. But the the big change, and and people have dinged the film for this, and I can see why. Is they they basically in the film say that Alan Turing conceptualized and built this machine by himself, and in reality. He took a machine that someone else had built. I, I, I'm forgetting the name, which is why people are upset about it because it's a name that should be known. Uh, but the, there was a guy who who built this machine, and then he actually came in and and did a lot of uh, crypto crypto analysis. Uh, he was a cryptographer, and so he he did a lot of the analysis and made the thing work. So he did, it was not purely his idea, and he was not quite as at odds with the team. Although occasionally he would be, he was not quite as at odds with the team as the film would depict. It doesn't make for as good a drama, so you can't fault the film for these things. Uh, if we can move into our dislikes, where I where I do fault the film, uh, and this is why ultimately it doesn't get a perfect star rating from me, is th- that that this this film does a little bit of rewriting with an agenda rather than with drama in mind, uh, and and that is uh, this whole thing with the investigation of the suspicious circumstances when his home was burglarized. 
and he was found to be having an indecent homosexual relationship in, in, the, in the 1950s. Um, the film shows that he was sentenced uh, to estrogen treatment, which caused emotional instability and uh, several other problems. Um, and the film then implies that this led to Turing's suicide. Um, that is only partially correct. Um, that is that is only partially correct. Um, he was given the choice of whether he wanted to be imprisoned or to uh, be on probation and take the uh, estrogen treatment, essentially chemical castration. He chose the estrogen treatment, and then all indications from, from, from the historical records are that after that, it did not affect his emotional state or his relationships with other people or his work, and, and it did not affect him emotionally. And uh, his suicide came actually 14 months after the treatments had ended and are not believed historically to be linked. Um, modern scholars actually believe, Joe, that uh, his death was accidental. Wow, that is a huge change. Yes, so that that's where I fault the film. This is rewriting with an agenda. And I understand the agenda and I, I get it. Like the whole thing, even so, uh, even the real story is tragic and oh my gosh, can, I can't believe this actually happened. You know, estrogen treatment? Come on, seriously? Um, the whole thing is is stupid. But um I, I just I I on on something like this, truthfulness is a better tack to take. Uh, so this is where I fault the film. This is my one dislike for the whole film. Mm. Um, I I will definitely have to nod an agreement for that dislike because I I'm still coming away from the the haze of the impression of the film. It's harder to solidify my dislikes, but I think with time I'm going to agree more and more with what you just said because if you're dramatically twisting the historical events to push your agenda then you you probably just shouldn't do that because it's going to damage the reputation of these filmmakers for twisting history as well as it's going to even um, dampen the value of what really happened, the real history. Yes. I mean, like they did the same thing with A Beautiful Mind in order to characterize that genius in a very positive light yet make you empathize with him. They significantly changed his story to make him more likable so that you would feel more compassion towards him, mm-hmm. that you would have more pity for him and more gross in his story so that by the end it, it would really tug on the heartstrings. But then if you get to know the real scientist, the real man, you don't feel that connection. Like it's not so remarkable and you can understand why some people would feel endeared to their story and why they matter historically. But I, basically sentimentality can sometimes get in the way of representing historically history greatly. Like history is better on its own merits than just to, um, boil it down to why we should feel emotional about this history. And uh, here's Absolutely why you should, agreed. you should feel bad for somebody. And here's why you should, um, you should hate on these other people who were doing something cruel during that time, because that usually leads to historical revisionism. And it does happen. It's, it's sad. We would like to think that the movie could be historically accurate, but when it's not going to be, it just um, dampens. I think a lot of people's, appreciation for the historical account account well historical revisionism especially in important points like like uh touring suicide and how it actually happened historical revisionism is really hard to avoid because you cannot help but write history people who write history people who take care of the textbooks people who are the keepers of these things 
it's really hard to keep your own personal prejudices out. Sometimes you don't even know they're getting in there. You're studying from a certain perspective, and that's why it's important for to see from the history from multiple perspectives and to get more than one writer, to get more than one textbook, to get more than one perspective. But it's already hard enough to keep historical revisionism from becoming a problem. Why would we do it on purpose? That that's that's where I come down on 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 that, especially on a point like this. And again, I get it when it doesn't matter and it's for the sake of the drama, like we talked about with the with the way that relate the relationship between Turing and Clark ended. That didn't bother me as much as this because this is important. Mm. Well, besides that one point, to be honest, I found this to be a practically flawless. A, a telling of a very dramatic story, dramatic in the sense of it, this is in the drama genre. And I really appreciated that because we don't get enough of those anymore. And um, I think that Hollywood in general shies away from biopics because they don't know how to make history sound interesting for two hours. That it doesn't mean that it isn't interesting. It's just that we don't have enough filmmakers that are interested in doing this anymore. Mm-hmm. And this, um, this wing uh, in and out of different genres is a constant chain and constant flux. So right now all the superheroes and the uh, spy action adventurers, they're going to be the most popular. Um, but there are different times and maybe we'll see a return to better dramas one day. I don't think that it's, we're just going to end up with more and more and more movies like, the Avengers. We're going to end up broadening and stretching all of the genres with due time. Maybe not as much as we would like in the rest of our lifetimes, but definitely over the next several uh, decades and probably well into the future. You know, Hollywood is still a very young medium. I was just so, thinking that actually, Joe. That's funny that you say that. Hollywood is is a very young kind of medium. While theater and the arts are not all that young, obviously they've been around since the beginning of time essentially – the, the the theater of of cinema is such a new medium. Really, it's only been around, you know, since the uh, just before the twenties. Um, I'm, I'm trying to remember when the first actual moving picture, you know, device was created. Maybe before that, but but really, only the last hundred and ten, hundred and you know, hundred 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 and ten years or so. And so, it is a really new medium, and we're still finding some of these things. You know, how are things going to settle? Like we were talking about earlier with the with the 3D graphics and the CGI and the animation of these things. And in another 100 years, in 200 years, in 500 years, what are the remakes going to look like? Are there going to be, you know, more remakes? Or are we going to be, you know, it, it, it's very interesting to think about that. Obviously, we won't be around in 500 years to know, uh, at least not not here on the Earth. But it, it's it's a very interesting thing to think about. If you wanted to know more about the earliest films and what the very first film was, you ought to go watch the movie called Hugo that came out in 2011, mm. made by Martin Scorsese. Uh, yeah, so um, that's really all I have to say about this movie, though, The Imitation Game. It's a, it's a huge coincidence. This is just a side note. But I helped my younger brother start a website this past summer. And when we were just looking for a random, clever name based on what his interests were, we were looking at the bookcase and thinking about his interests, and we were reading book titles, kind of like um, the guy did that uh, wrote the original James Bond novels. And, you know, he just accidentally happened upon the names James Bond because he took the, the name of two other authors and put them together. <laughs> for his character. And uh, we did that sort of thing and came up with my brother's um, blog name and we came up with the intuition game. Interesting. Um, So it was like, Oh, well that's, that's just a little bit ironic. (laughs) Um, Purely coincidental, but it it made me smile more than once whenever I thought about this movie in relation to my brother. 
Um, so that is what it is. And uh, yes, the imitation game. So are we ready to hone in our ratings and final conclusions? Yeah, I think there are – the universes are colliding. Uh, things are collapsing. Uh, the stars are falling down or around us uh, because you and I have the same <laughs> star rating for this film. When is the last time that ever happened? I don't know. This is weird. Uh, Joe. I maybe feel, episode I feel weird. three. I don't know. It's. <laughs> I, I do think that this might be the day that nobody dies. Okay. So the star rating, what is your star rating and, and how would you like to characterize this film and wrap it up, Joe? I give it four and a half stars just because it is a very greatly entertaining biopic and it's definitely inspiring. It tugs on the heartstrings. It is definitely flawed. It's not a perfect film. I have qualms about the the uh, the mission of the film, so to speak, um, how preachy it got at times. But even even though it was even so, it was very crafty and it didn't dampen the entertainment value. So I definitely appreciate a great deal of the movie's gravitas, and so it earns four and a half stars very respectfully. And for me as well, four and a half out of five stars, just that little bit that I mentioned where it just it had a little bit of an agenda and it, it felt like it needed to revise history a little for that agenda that cost it its its half a point. Honestly, I was near the five star territory. I mean, this is such a fantastic film. Well worth your time to see uh, a, a historical film about Alan Turing, such an important figure in history, both in modern computing and in ending World War II earlier than it otherwise would have, saving so many lives. Who knows? Maybe one of our uh, maybe one of our ancestors, Joe, you or me, would have died in the war and we wouldn't have been born had he not done what he did. It's interesting to think about. And mm. and I really love the craftsmanship of this film. I love the themes that it explores. It tells uh, a true story about Alan Turing in many ways, a true story. Um and a story that that will live on in, in you know it doesn't oversell most of its stuff except for what we talked about it it doesn't uh it doesn't feel the need to mire you down in uh in the war uh and in, in showing you these grisly images which so many other films have done so well it plays to its strengths it plays to what's going on and 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 we feel like that you know you talked about the passage of time joe that was such an important thing that so many films are missing even films that i really like you sit here and go no way did this happen in 24 hours and that's what you made it feel like so this film did that so well and for all these reasons i give it four and a half stars and i highly recommend it if you haven't seen it yet please do yourself the favor of going to see it it is a fantastic film imdb uh the users rated an 8.4 out of 10 rotten tomatoes critics are at 89 percent Audience uh, audience ratings at 95%. Uh, so it is a well-liked, well-respected, well-reviewed film. Well worth your time to see. So we're going to go ahead and wrap up this episode, Joe. But uh, if people would be interested in following you and your opinions, and I think you, you're getting ready to start some good stuff. I don't know if you're ready to talk about it yet or not, but you, you will certainly tweet about it, and you'll probably mention it here again at some point. Mm, but give yes. people the rundown of where they can find you at. You can find me on Twitter. I'm underscore Joe Darnell. My website is intentionalsensibility.com. You can get there at joedarnell.com. And uh, the other project I'm working on is a podcast slash website I'm very excited about. It, uh, it's going to explore one of my other major interests and uh, something that I have been involved in for a few years now as a uh, side hustle, so to speak. Mm. So I'm really hoping to 
um, reach into this new topic and explore it more in depth and find a, a great community. Cause I, I think that there are lots of people that are going to be interested in this topic. So, um, I wouldn't be surprised if a number of our movie bite listeners will be interested in this other show, we'll have to see, wait and see. Oh, of course they um, will. Of course uh, they definitely, will. Oh, thank you, TJ. I'm honored. Um, but yeah, we'll have to wait and see. It'll be officially launched next week. So we'll, I'm sure we're going to talk about it for a moment or two on movie bite next week. I'm sure we will. Uh, and, and that'll be, that'll be a lot of fun. I, I love to see people launch new projects. So that'll be fun. If you'd like to follow me and uh, see what kind of new stuff I get up to, uh, I'm sure they will. You can do so uh, on Twitter. I am TJ Draper Pro on Twitter. Uh, if you want to follow the things that I write about in regards to movies, and that's pretty much all the writing that I do uh, these days, but it, you can do that at moviebyte.com, the, the main website there, uh, M O V I E B Y T E.com. In addition, if you want to find the show notes for this episode or you want to share the link with your friends, you enjoyed the episode so much and you you went and you saw the imitation game and, oh my gosh, it's the best thing ever and you've got to share the goodness, we would really appreciate that. So go to moviebyte.com slash mbpodcast slash 121. That is this episode. You'll find there the show notes, the audio, the way you download it, the way you subscribe to the podcast, more info about me and Joe as the hosts, and... Uh, all kinds of goodies there so go there and uh also if you want to drop by itunes and type in movie bite in the search box and then uh, click on the podcast and give us a five-star rating because you liked uh because you liked imitation games so much and that seemed like the appropriate thing to do we would also appreciate that with that uh, we're going to sign off next week we will be reviewing the film unbroken which i have also been looking forward to and i've been hearing good things about as well i doubt it'll be as good as the imitation game but i think we'll have a lot of fun talking about it so uh, we will talk about that next week, and we'll look forward to sharing that with you. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, DJ. That's all.